Have you ever thought more deeply about the different tasks we carry out every single day? As a kid, we would take things one day at a time. We would slowly work on our motor skills, sitting down, standing up, walking around, to more complex movements like learning to tie your shoes or playing sports. What we might call simple tasks right now were once mission impossibles. There are, of course, times when we might not be able to perform these daily missions to the best of our abilities. And in these times, we count on some extra help to build or restore our skills. Not all superheroes wear capes, of course. And in this case, the superheroes I'm referring to are occupational therapists. Occupational therapists, or OTs, work on a wide variety of issues from mental and physical to emotional and developmental. Today, we have the pleasure of meeting a superstar OT, Meg Proctor. Tune in to find out how she inspires change through her company, Learn, Play, Thrive. Welcome to Autism Thinks. This podcast is hosted by the New Jersey Autism Center of Excellence, where we bring together the neuroscience, technology, and innovation to a soundscape that'll change your perspectives on all things autism and the world around us. Just one episode at a time. Learning, playing, and thriving sound like some of the best things in life. Meg Proctor is an OT who specializes in helping the autistic community. My name is Meg Proctor, and my business is Learn, Play, Thrive. And the reason I do what I do is to try and change the way occupational therapists work with people on the autism spectrum. Through online trainings, she teaches therapists to use a deeper understanding of autism learning styles to shape their work so that they can become more confident and effective in their interventions. Welcome to the Two Sides of the Spectrum. She also has an amazing podcast called Two Sides of the Spectrum. Notice that in all her work, she's guided by her insight into the latest research and evidence-based practices, as well as her focus on centering the views and voices of autistic individuals. I teach online courses, and I have a podcast called Two Sides of the Spectrum. We have this whole idea that people on the autism spectrum are bad at social skills and bad at perspective taking. And it's really not true. It's that this issue goes for both sides of the spectrum, that non-autistic people have a very hard time taking the perspective of autistic people and using the social skills that are useful for them. Meg fosters positive autistic self-identity and encourages a strengths-based approach, which is certainly a phrase to keep an eye out for throughout this episode. 
Changing our language and approach on ASD can change how we can better help folks in the autistic community. And part of what I've learned through my work is to use identity first language. So you'll hear me say autistic, not person with autism, because that's the preference of most autistic people. They don't need to be separated from autism like it's a disease. It's not. It's part of their identity. get into the strengths-based approach, we're just going to understand more about what occupational therapy entails. It actually involves so many different facets of people's lives. It's a really broad field, but the most important thing to know about it is that for occupational therapy, occupation means any activity that a person needs or wants to do in their life. So the real purpose of occupational therapy is to help people participate more fully and more joyfully in their daily activities. So for people who think and learn differently, that might mean that we need to change the way we set up activities, change the way we teach them, teach others around them some new skills, and teach our neurodiverse clients new skills so that they can fully engage and feel supported in the meaningful things they want or need to do in their life. OTs focus on the needs of their patients, creating a manageable plan and helping them reach and succeed in certain goals. In other settings, it can look different, right? Because we support people who have physical disabilities, people who have been injured. So there's a really broad range. But when it comes to working with autistic kids, we're mostly looking at what do you need and want to do and how can we help you feel more successful in doing it? You're probably thinking, what exactly does a day in the life of an occupational therapist look like? There are different models of how a session with an OT could go. During a a typical session, there's a couple of different models. One model is a little bit older, and it's where the therapist actually works with the child working towards goals. So you might sit down and play with them on the floor and then come to the table and do some tabletop activities together um, and then work on a self-care skill together. Or if you're in the school, you might be at the table working on something writing, something cutting, something gluing, and then talk through or plan out an issue that the child might be having during another routine in their day. A newer model, it's not that new, but it's taking a long time to, to get real traction, is a coaching model where therapists are working with the parent or caregiver or teacher and observing what's happening and then coaching that parent or caregiver or teacher for what they can do to support the child during their daily routines. So one of those two things are usually something in between is what's happening during a session. You might also be wondering how a day in the life of an OT has changed during the pandemic. Instead of physically being there for the child or adult, they may need to find safe ways to interact with them or pivot to means of teletherapy. So I will say my day isn't typical. My business is just teaching and training other therapists right now. I'm not even doing consulting with local programs during the pandemic. 
But for most OTs, thinking about people who work with kids in particular, they either work in the schools or in a clinic or they go into families' homes. And a lot of people have shifted to teletherapy or virtual therapy during the pandemic, which has been a hard transition. And it's given people a chance to work with parents in new ways and to go into the homes, although virtually, if that's not where they were working before. Because what we do only really matters when it translates to the daily routine and the real environment. So it's been really useful for many therapists in that regard to get out of the clinic, to get out of the school, to actually see into a child's home, to meet their family, and to learn about the daily routines in that way. She talks about how the pandemic has affected their practice in different ways, bringing about thoughtful decisions being made on how to provide care safely. What daily life looks like now differs so much. You know, what what our job entails is planning for a session, doing the session either in the school, in a clinic room, or going to the family's home, and then writing a note to document what happened in the session. We also do evaluations and document those. So some people are doing those virtually. Some people are in schools and in homes and in clinics, again, just masking and using personal protective equipment. Um, And others are doing a hybrid. And still others are not able to work because they're home with their children who aren't in school. So this year has really shaken it up for everybody. graduate school, Meg was a clinical faculty member for UNC Chapel Hill's Teach Autism program. She said she was trained and mentored by some of the best autism therapists in the world. While she gave training to teachers and therapists, a recurring thought kept coming to her mind. Where are the OTs? They could really use this training to specialize in the field. I was actually working for UNC Chapel Hill's Teach Autism program, and I don't work there anymore, but I used to, and they were one of the first programs to say autism has its own culture, autistic people have their own learning style, we should learn about it, and we should figure out how to support them. So they came up with the idea of things like visual supports back in the 70s when other people were saying, you know, that autism was caused by bad mothers. They were saying, no, autism is neurodevelopmental, and we can learn about how our clients learn and teach to it. So when I was working for them, I was giving trainings, and we were giving trainings on all of the things that OTs do, like how do we support people in their daily routines, in their daily lives, But for some reason, there weren't OTs at those trainings. And I knew that this was the training that OTs needed to feel more successful in their work. In OT school, they're trained to be competent in a broad range of fields. So it really helps to have more focused or specialized training in caring for and supporting autistic children and adults especially as they're dealing directly with them on the ground. We come out of school trained as generalists. We know how to work as much with autism as we do with Alzheimer's and a broken wrist. Um, So we're not particularly good at any one thing until we do continuing education and learn more about it. 
So I know a lot of therapists, I certainly was, are, are struggling with their autistic clients because they don't have good training in how autistic people think, learn, and what their strengths are. So when I was teaching this particular training, I was like, gosh, I wish OTs could have access to this training. So when I left there, I took the content, I adapted it, updated it, incorporated lessons from autistic voices, made it more tailored toward occupational therapy. And now I use a similar approach to train OTs because we are on the ground. We are with families. We are with autistic kids. We are getting paid to support them in their daily routines. So we should be doing it this way. In her journey through training and podcasts, she talks about a memorable moment, a key instance where her perspective shifted in a way that guided her work. A year or so ago, I read an article written by Dr. Christy Patton, who's the chair of the OT department at NYU, on using a strengths-based approach to autism. And I hadn't really thought explicitly about strengths-based approaches before. I had thought about learning styles approaches, but I think you could take that and still use a deficits-based approach. So I, I got Christy on the phone and we talked about it. And I think I could be wrong, but I think it was her who said, have you heard of the double empathy problem? And that was the biggest moment that changed my work. Double empathy problem. Three words that form a phrase coined by sociologist Damien Milton. When we think of autism, we may think about it in terms of deficits in theory of mind and empathy, which both have the underlying notion of the ability to think from someone else's point of view. With the double empathy problem, though, we realize that it might not really be that autistic people lack empathy. Rather, their different neurotypes and experiences may make it harder for non-autistic people to understand them, and vice versa. So the double empathy problem is research done. The idea was generated by Dr. Damian Milton, who is an autistic researcher who was on episode two of my podcast, actually. But his idea was that maybe the thing everybody has been saying about autistic people being bad at perspective taking and social skills isn't quite that simple. So it's like I mentioned earlier, but I'll go into it a little bit more now. He did an experiment where he grouped autistic people with autistic people, non-autistic people with non-autistic people. And both groups were equally good at sharing information within their group. And both reported equal levels of satisfaction with the social exchange or with the social experience. When they mixed the group, so it was a mixed group of autistic and non-autistic people, everybody was equally ineffective and equally frustrated. And that really highlighted for me that I, like everybody else, have been perpetuating this idea that autistic people had bad perspective taking skills and we needed to teach them. And it was like, wait, we do too. Nobody is good at taking the perspective of somebody who thinks differently from them. And just because neurotypicality or being non-autistic is more common or what we're used to, it doesn't make it 
the right way that everyone else needs to learn. So that was a moment of really, real shifting for me. So when I was a child growing up in Jackson, Mississippi, um, the, the stories of my grandparents, um, youth and middle age really were very prominently featured in our family. Um, my grandparents were very middle-class and in some ways society kind of people, um, but they were civil rights activists in Mississippi um, long before desegregation happened. Um, That was wildly unpopular amongst many of their white peers. Um, And, you know, I grew up with the stories of my grandmother housing freedom riders and getting people out of the most inhumane makeshift prisons and um, making people food. And my grandfather, who was a pediatrician, integrated his clinic before desegregation in Mississippi, which is extraordinarily brave. This audio was from a video Meg posted dedicated to her inspiring grandmother. She said she was raised to be confident, think out of the box, and use her voice. And she believes that instilling that quality from a young age can make it all the more easier to create a better world. I was raised to sort of speak truth to power. And I was raised to say what I believed even when it was not popular. And that was really celebrated in my family in Jackson, Mississippi, strangely enough. So I was raised with that confidence and conviction to be controversial. It's gotten me in so much trouble in my life and people don't always like it, but it also makes it a lot easier. And so I will say people who were raised to not break the mold and to not rock the boat have more of an uphill battle here. The uphill battle involves changing how we may perceive our own being. We may need to reflect on what change we wish to see in the world and work towards aligning ourselves with thoughts and action. And what I think we have to do is to change our idea of ourselves at our core. If you think of yourself as someone who is brave, as someone who stands up for what they believe in, even when it's unpopular, if you look through the lens of history at what you're doing now, would future you say, I'm glad I was brave then, even though it was hard. And once we've shifted our idea of our core self, we can say, are our actions aligned with that? She also talks about how this mindset can translate to how we raise the next generation to come. That is so much easier said than done. So I think our other responsibility is those of us who have children is to raise them to really question things, including us. (laughs) My husband doesn't always love this, but 
you know, authority for authority's sake isn't doing any favors to our children. So making people feel Mm -hmm. listened to and heard and important and valued, even when they're challenging us from a very young age, raises the next generation of people who will shift paradigms. Meg discusses what neurodiversity means to her and the beauty of it. We need to think of ways to create a world that supports all forms of thinking, which can benefit each and every one of us sharing the same space on this planet. So if we think about autism as a culture rather than as a disability or a disease, then it doesn't become something that we need to change or rehabilitate. It becomes something that we need to learn about and become culturally competent in. So even though there are more non-autistic, more neurotypical people than there are neurodiverse people, it doesn't mean that it's better to be neurotypical. It's easier because the world is set up for us. But when we try and change people, it, it's really just crushing who they are. It um, increases masking or when autistic people have to try and act non-autistic, which is strongly linked to suicidality. So all we are doing when we, when we try to make autistic people present as neurotypical um, is hurting them. So neurodiversity is saying there are lots of different ways to be in the world. Being neurotypical is one, but it's not the only one and it's not the right one. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make the world a safer, more comfortable place for people who think and learn differently. So in the same way, we might celebrate racial diversity or diversity in gender expression or diversity in religion, we can also celebrate and accept and learn about diversity in ways of thinking and learning. Finally, if you're an aspiring OT, Meg's got your back with some words of wisdom. It's to to break out of the mold. People go to OT school with these big ideas about what they're going to do, and then the jobs can be less than what you hoped for. You might find yourself you know, in a closet in a school teaching handwriting all day. And I would just challenge people who want to be OTs to figure out why they want to do it, figure out what type of OT they want to be, and then push to make that happen, even when it goes against the green and even when it's uncomfortable. Because nothing changes if there aren't brave people who speak to their values and listen to their clients and try to change things. So if you're working with a neurodiverse population, listen to and learn from the people that you are working with or other folks from that group. And then be an advocate for making the way your OT practice happens more reflective of your respect and advocacy for them. It's hard. That, that's a hard challenge. But I'm saying don't just do your job. Do better. Thanks so much for tuning in to Autism Thinks. The amazing OT Meg Proctor joined us today, and I definitely recommend listening to her Two Sides of the Spectrum podcast if you haven't already. I'm your host, Hannah, and here's Meg leaving you with some updates on some of her upcoming events. We've linked the website to sign up in our show notes. So that's where people can find me at learnplaythrive.com. I have an upcoming live training in January for professionals working with autistic people, and it's called A Strengths-Based Approach to Autism and Behavior. 
And in that training, we really shift from thinking about what somebody struggles with and going from there towards trying to understand the perspective of our autistic clients using the lens of autism learning styles and then using their strengths to build up our intervention plan. 